Our scripture today is Colossians 2, verses 1 through 10. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. This is the word of our Lord. Good morning. You guys doing well? Outstanding. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Colossians. Turn to Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. This is round three for me. I'm loving it. I love studying God's Word. I love what we do here week in and week out. We've been working our way through the book of Colossians. We've titled it, Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. And the reason why we say is because our, we live in a world today, and we even have churches in our community that would say Jesus plus something else equals everything, and that's simply not true. And this book is actually helping us with that. And this weekend, we're going to talk about beware of empty philosophies. You can also grab your uh, sermon notes there and take a look at the intro here. I'm going to start off by... Uh, kind of bringing to your remembrance, maybe, possibly, if you're familiar with this, the frog and the kettle experiment. Anybody familiar with the frog and the kettle experiment? How many are not familiar with the frog and the kettle experiment? Okay, you need to go and look that up to find out what that's all about, okay? I'm just kidding you. I'll tell you in a minute, but let's just walk through this intro. The frog and the kettle experiment is a a gruesome reminder of the silent toll of spiritual and moral deterioration. Let me tell you what that experiment is. How many were in high school and you did that maybe in earth science or something like that? Show of hands, anybody here? Wow, you guys are really, really old. And uh, was that back in 1920? No, you're, you're, you're not that old. But yeah, typically that was done in, in uh, science classes in high school. They'd put a frog in a kettle. Uh, there'd be people outraged over this nowadays, but you put a frog in a kettle with a, under and with a Bunsen burner underneath it, and with it it slowly heating up the water until the frog literally boils to death without the frog ever croaking or crying out. That was was a bad joke. But uh, because the, the, the frog will croak, it will die, but it won't cry out, nor will it jump out of the water. But little by little, you boil the frog to death. And that is exactly what is happening in our country today. We are the frog in the kettle. And not only do I see it happening in our country today, I see this happening in many mainline churches. I see this happening in homes. I see this happening in individual lives. Take a look at your sermon notes here. Slowly, almost imperceptibly, certain things are accepted that were once rejected. 
Things once considered wrong and hurtful are gradually tolerated, leading to inevitable destruction. And so that's why he's warning us here. Beware of these empty philosophies. In fact, let me give you two warnings here. At the top there of your notes, should be also up here on the screen behind us, 1 Timothy 4.16. This is Paul writing to young Timothy, the pastor, and he says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Notice the two there. So you've got teaching, you've got these uh, objective points of reference through teaching, but also make sure your life is in alignment with that teaching. And then he says, persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. That's not up on the notes. Is that on your notes? Not on your notes? Okay, I'm just reciting it. You guys listen on, okay? And that's, that's plenty, but that's what he's saying there. Here's another verse. It's Hebrews 2.1. And it says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away, lest we drift away. We used to take our family, when our kids were young, we'd take time off, we'd go to the lake, Roosevelt Lake, uh, Lake Pleasant, uh, Lake Powell, we loved skiing, we'd go out there and stir up the water for all the people that liked to fish. <laughs> they didn't like us very much, but we'd go out there and we, we had fun. There were some of us that were part of our group that would like to fish, but for the most part, we'd go up there and do a lot of water skiing. Our kids were small, we'd put tents on the shoreline, and we'd tell our kids when they're out there playing is that make sure that you stay within, and we give them these points of reference, objective points of reference, and we need you to stay within these boats, we got these two boats here, play there, and don't go out beyond this buoy, and there's a buoy that was quite a ways out, it was at Lake Pleasant, it says don't start heading towards that buoy, because outside that buoy there was a lot of boats uh, racing, speeding, uh, people were skiing, very dangerous. It was, it was on an afternoon one time and we were just out carrying on, talking, having a good time and someone from another camp came over to our camp and said, whose kids are those out there about to pass beyond that buoy out there in that flotation device? And it happened to be my uh, daughter and her friend. They were real small and they were floating out past that buoy. Of course, we freaked out. Somebody got in a boat, went out there and grabbed them and pulled them back. I say that story is because it's really important that not only do we have these objective points of reference, but we make sure that we stay within those in the busyness of our life, in the craziness of life, we need to be able to look up from time to time and say, hey, am I still within the range of what God wants me to do and experience and have for my life as it relates to my relationships, my marriage, my parenting, my finances, my personal life, my emotional life, my spiritual life? There are objective points of reference that God has for us, it's for our good, and ultimately for God's glory. But if we're not aware of that, I'm telling you, the silent toll of spiritual and moral decay will begin to take place and we will drift away. As we are seeing, as I said, in our country today, we will drift away from that which is most important to us. And that's what he's talking about here. In fact, let me bring you up to speed if you haven't been with us in this study thus far. We just finished up chapter one. Chapter one is all about doctrine, Christ preeminence declared. Christ preeminence declared. He, he, he's just, we've spent a number of weeks since the beginning of this year talking about Jesus' superiority, his sufficiency, and how satisfying he is. Now in chapter two, he begins to get into this warning. He's, he's this danger it goes from doctrine to danger to Christ's preeminence defended. All of chapter two is about warning us about those things that would interfere with us finding our completeness in Christ. He calls them these philosophies. And so 
Paul is greatly concerned for the churches in Colossae and Laodicea that they would stay the course and not be led astray from finding all they need in Christ Jesus. So the next three weeks we'll spend in chapter two of Colossians, and this week we're talking about beware of empty philosophies, we'll talk about that. And then next weekend we'll talk about beware of religious legalism, and then we'll finish up chapter two in a couple weeks and talk about beware of counterfeit Christianity, because these are all things that can draw our hearts away from our sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So let's talk about beware of empty philosophies. And this is our problem that we see, and these are the things that can draw our hearts away from Christ. Take a look at verse four, he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you. The word delude just basically means they're deceiving you. You're being duped. And they delude you with plausible arguments. Wow, that sounds pretty slick, he's a really great Communicator, he's very articulate. Ooh, he's even fun to hang out with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they can delude you with that smooth talking. A lot of good smooth talkers out there that will delude you. That's what he's saying. And then in verse eight, look at this. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive. In fact, these philosophies will, will, will enslave you, takes you captive by philosophy. Notice also, empty deceit empty deceit, it will deceive you according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Notice the contrast there, not according to Christ. So why is he warning? Because they are plausible arguments that will deceive and imprison you. That's why he's giving us this warning. There are, there are plausible arguments in our culture that will deceive and imprison you and pull your heart away from Christ. And then what is it according to human tradition? Human tradition is an argument oftentimes people will give. Well, this is what we've always done. This has been passed on from generation to generation. What's wrong with this? Well, there could be something very wrong with it. Even though it's been passed on from generation to generation, it doesn't mean it's true or right or helpful. I've seen things passed on from one generation to the next that were, that were wrong, that were bad. And so he uses this argument they're, they were obviously using an argument of human tradition. Oh, this is what we've always done. This is how we've always done church. This is just the way it's supposed to be. It says human tradition, and then he also says according to the elemental, elemental spirits of the world. And what is that? That's demons. That's doctrines of demons. I believe that a lot of the major cults, uh, Christian cults out there, are doctrines of demons. I think uh, Jehovah Witnesses would be one, uh, Mormonism is another. Those are doctrines of demons. You know, Christian science and Scientology and a lot of these others are doctrines of demons. Islam, doctrine of demons. I know I'm not supposed to say that, but that's what the Bible teaches and that's what is very clear. And those are these philosophies that will draw your heart away from Christ. We'll dive into that a little bit more as we look at our list. But uh, it tells us 1 Timothy 4.1 talks about those doctrines of demons. So now what's interesting about this is that there's a lot of debates over what these philosophies are. Colossians is not clear about what Paul is, is warning them of. But I think what we can learn from this is that Paul is just warning that philosophies exist and every generation needs to be aware of what philosophies are prevalent in their generation that will pull people away from Christ from this supremacy of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ, the satisfaction that we find in Christ. So what is this idea of philosophy? What does that word mean anyway? Uh, turn to the person next to you and see if they know what the definition of philosophy is. 
the philosophies, because we're going to look at some philosophies in our culture today that are prevalent. Real quick, do that. So anybody get this? So here's what philosophy is. If you look at the word, the front end of the word phileo is where we get, it's, it's rooted in phileo, which is love. So that's that brotherly love. Phileo is one of the Greek words for love. And the second part is sophia. So phileo, philosophy. So sophia is wisdom. So it's the love of wisdom. Anybody get that? Anybody understood what I was talking about? Okay, so it's the love of wisdom. Nothing wrong with that. You want to love wisdom. We need to love wisdom. And, and so uh, we'll talk a little bit about, I'll give you a definition of wisdom, but, but in fact, the Bible has a section of Scripture. It's called the wisdom literature. Anybody know where that is found? Okay, it's Old Testament. And what is it? What are those books? Someone said Proverbs. What else? What other books? Psalms, Job, Ecclesiastes. Song of Songs, Song of Solomon. So there's five of those. Let me define for you what wisdom is. Wisdom is seeing and responding to life from God's perspective. It's having a biblical worldview. So as you're navigating life and as you're dealing with trials and temptations and problems and issues and parenting and and, uh, marriage and responding to your workplace and neighbors and all of that, the Bible has a way that he wants, that God wants us to respond and, and gives us a perspective. It's a, having a biblical worldview is that you begin to see and respond to life from God's perspective. It's competency in life's realities. It's real skillful living is really what it is from God's perspective. So God has a certain order and design because he loves us and he has the very, our, he has our best interest at heart. And so I, he, he gives us his word, but also a section in that word is called wisdom literature that helps us to navigate life. Just really smart, smart living from God's perspective. I mean, it just makes sense that we would want to follow that because uh, God, he knows how he created us. He knows what's in our best interest. He, he has our best interest at heart. And so he wants us to, to learn to live like that. Now, what's crazy about that is in our culture today is that we have tons and tons of information and knowledge. In fact, we're overwhelmed. We're overwhelmed with information and knowledge, but very little wisdom. There is not much wisdom in our culture today. And you've got to be careful about where you go to get your wisdom. And we are bombarded with all these negative philosophies and ideas that will take your heart away from Christ. And so I made a list here for us, and we'll zip through this list because this is, this is just some of the problems that we have in our culture today. Some of the philosophies that are swirling around that will grab a hold of your mind, your heart, and draw you away from Christ. So these are deadly. And a lot of people aren't, aren't aware of this. And some of these have infiltrated Christians' lives and churches. And so as we look through this list, you're going to want to be able to say, okay, which of these philosophies are working over time to draw my heart away from Christ? You, you ought to be able to identify these. If you're a healthy Christian, you'll be able to say, oh, yeah, this is one that I have to battle regularly. And that would be honest. That would be normal. That would be healthy. So here's the first one is narcissism. Narcissism is prevalent in our culture today, would you say? Oh, my goodness, lovers of self. I mean, we've got a, American culture is all about this. 
Lovers of self, 2 Timothy 3, 2. Excessive preoccupation with your wants, your needs, your desires at the expense of others. And it just makes sense. We turn away from God. We rebel against him. It's going to leave us empty. And so we're going to be desperate to fill the emptiness inside so that we're going to be a lover of self more than a lover of God. Because we're not getting what we need from God. We're going to try to get it from you and everybody else and anything I involve myself in. So that's why that happens. We become narcissistic. Excessive preoccupation with your wants, needs, desires at the expense of others. By the way, there's a spectrum on each one of these from lesser to greater. So just keep that in mind. Uh, this is also known as sovereign self or the expressive individual, individualism, expressive individualism. Here's the language that's common in our culture today. Follow your heart. Be true to yourself. Make your own path and purpose. And my question is like, how are you gonna do that? You didn't create you, did you? Did you create you? You didn't create you. So how are you gonna come up with your purpose? You need to go back to your maker. Of course, you don't believe in a maker, so you're going to try to make it up as you go. That's insane. That's why we got the craziness going on in our world today. That makes no sense whatsoever. But there's that narcissist reigns in our culture today. How about materialism? Would you agree with me that materialism reigns and rules in our culture today? There's multi-billion dollar industry trying to convince you that happiness is one purchase away. Consumerism, consumption, you know, commercialism, so lovers of money or what money can buy. 2 Timothy 3, 2. This is what Jesus said to a couple of brothers who were arguing over an inheritance, also to the crowd that was listening in. He said, beware of covetousness. Beware of desiring after the things that you don't have because real life and real living does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. All the stuff in the world cannot fill the emptiness inside of you. Only God can do that. And though you might have a lot of junk, you may have a pile of stuff, but guess what? It'll never satisfy you like he can satisfy you. And you'll still be empty looking for more. It'll never be enough. That's materialism. And then you've got hedonism. Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. 2 Timothy 3, 4. You notice all of those first three are right from the same uh, text because he's talking about the end days. You'll see this stuff increasing in intensity. So lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. We, we choose comfort over character. Would you guys agree with that in our culture today? And what does God choose for us? He chooses character over comfort. He will sacrifice your comfort for the sake of your character because he wants you to know him and to experience him more than anything else, which we all desperately need more than anything else. And so you've got, uh, so you got narcissism, materialism, hedonism. These are philosophies in our culture today. How about secularism? Secularism is nowism, I call it. It's living for now with no thought of tomorrow. And I see this among our young people, and I can understand. You feel like you're going to live forever, and you know nothing's ever going to go wrong until you have a close brush with death or you lose someone close to you around your age, and then you're shocked, like someone could actually die. Well, of course, we're all going to eventually die. It's just a matter of time. And so our tendency is to not think beyond tomorrow or even into eternity. We just kind of live for now. Live for now, very much promoted in our culture today. And that's why Paul said in Ephesians 5, 15 through 17, be very careful then in how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish but understand what the Lord's will is. You want to live a life that you're not wasting? Live the Lord's will. Be careful. 
We're running out of time is what he's saying. Make your life count. Don't waste it. Don't just live for now. Live for eternity and have an eternal perspective. Okay, and so that's secularism. And then relativism. Moral truth is a matter of taste or opinion. Here's what I find really crazy. I mean, it's just, I see people just outraged over social injustice. That's wrong. That's racism. That's wrong. And yet at the same time, they'll go off and live their life morally however they want to live. It doesn't matter, you know, what sex I am or if I, you know, what kind of uh, lifestyle I live or whatever I want to do sexually. That's nobody's business. Like there's no objective truth in your morals, but there is objective truth when it comes to social justice. That's duplicity. That's a contradiction. Like you can pick and choose where, there's, where things are wrong and right, and then in other areas of your life, you can just kind of live however you want to live. See, that's called relativism. Moral truth is a matter of taste or opinion, and you can pick and choose. That's what our world says. Oh, you can pick and choose. Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. It's the way of death. And then moralism. Moralism, you ask most Americans, when you die, where will you end up? And most would say, I'm going to heaven. Why are you going to heaven? Because I'm basically a good person. It's called moralism. I mean, think about it. Compared to those people over there, I'm pretty decent. See, anytime you're comparing yourself with other people, you're, you're doomed, okay? And you can always find people that are worse than you, but you can always find people that are better than you. But I prefer to look at the people that are worse than me, okay? That's where I'm gonna focus my attention, and that's why I like to hang out with you guys. I'm kidding. I feel really good about myself. I'm like his star pupil. Thank you, Jesus. Look at these people that I'm hanging with. Oh, my goodness. I'm so much further ahead than them. Well, that's crazy. That's insane. Guess what? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The ground in front of the cross is level. If you think you're without sin, you deceive yourself, and the truth is not in you. I gave you those two verses right there. That's 1 John 1, 8. So if we don't think we have any sin in us, I'm pretty, basically a good person, you, you are self-deceived. That's probably the worst kind of deception. You're self-deceived. You're, you're out of touch. You're flat out, out of touch with your sinfulness. And therefore, that's probably why grace isn't such a big deal to you. Because I'm telling you, when you're in touch with your sinfulness and your separation from God, grace is amazing. It's overwhelming. And the gospel just like gets a hold of your heart and, and you're never the same as a result of that. But that's moralism, that's the number that'll do on you. And then there's pluralism. Religious pluralism is all roads lead to God. Did you like that new, that new song we learned at the very front end of our worship time? Uh, it was 1 Timothy 2.5. There's one God, one mediator between God and men, and the man Christ, that's the man Christ Jesus. Yep, there's only one way to be reconciled to God. There's only one way to get to heaven. There's only one way to really have God in your life, and that's through Jesus Christ. And uh, John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And so that kind of gets rid of, you know, when people say, well, I just think all roads lead to God, and basically they're all saying the same. Well, evidently you haven't studied all of them because there's major contradiction in all of them. And one of the biggest contradictions is that they all deny the deity of Jesus Christ, that he is indeed God. And, and that's an important distinction. And so then you've got humanism. Together we can make a better world. Folks, can't we just get along? Come on, let's be nice to each other. If we work really hard here, we could change this place. You know we can. 
And I'm not against people wanting to do that, but ultimately we can't cure our own illness and problem. For the wages of sin is death. We are doomed, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I'm for us getting along. I'm for us working on things, but ultimately all the humanism in the world isn't going to change the trajectory of this country or this world. We're headed to hell in a handbasket because we've rebelled against a holy, righteous God, but he's made a way for us to come back to him through Jesus Christ, but people reject that. So all the humanism in the world cannot correct that problem. That's a major problem. All of our problems are symptomatic of our rebellion against God and our failure to come back to him. In humanism, you know, I, I'll rally behind you and lay yeah, we do need to work together and all that, but ultimately we need Jesus in the midst of all of that. And then that leads to existentialism. It kind of goes along with humanism. It's, it's existentialism, you'll oftentimes hear this promoted, you know, when you have a big, uh, like the bombing years ago at Boston, and they would say things like, Boston strong. We can stare evil in the face and overcome it. And I, I said, yeah, that's, I believe that, and I think that's important because we're image bearers of God. And he's given us a great deal of resilience and ability to overcome that. But ultimately, that comes from God, which oftentimes I hear people never uh, admit that. And secondly, what do we have when it's all said and done? I can tell you what we have, Mark 8, 36. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? So, okay, you're one tough dude or, or dudeette, okay? You're a gal that you're tough and you're able to face, you know, crisis and difficulty and you're becoming stronger as a result of that, but you're going to still die and you will face eternity. Where will you spend eternity? And at the same time, though you were able to overcome all those odds that were working against you in your life, yeah, I applaud that because you're an image bearer of God and you have that kind of resilience, but you miss the most important thing in life, and that's to know the living God, and when you die, to go and be with the living God for all eternity. What good is it if a man gains the whole world but loses his soul? That's that idea of existentialism, and I need to spend just a little bit more time on this last one. Tolerance-ism. Okay, there's not a word, but I added the ism on there just to make it consistent because all the other ones are isms and this is an ism. You could say tolerance-ism or intolerance-ism, however you want to say it. But this is also a very serious problem, and here's how it's defined in our culture today. All positions are equally valid and must be celebrated or you are intolerant. In fact, you're not just intolerant, you're hateful. Now, here's the old definition of, of tolerance that I'm, I'm watching in our culture today, and as I said, it's that silent toll of spiritual and moral decay. This is what's creeping in in our culture today, and I'm seeing this more and more. Here's the old definition of tolerance that was accepted. It's this, I may detest what you say, but I will defend to my death your right to say it. That's the old tolerance. You can disagree with that person and, uh, and still be judged tolerant if you give the other person the right to speak. That's the old definition of tolerance. New de definition of tolerance is this. It is wrong to say the other person is wrong, and if you say that someone is wrong, then you are intolerant, you're hateful, you're bigoted, you're self-righteous, you're, you're racist. So it goes like this. If you say that Jesus is the only way to God, which is an exclusive truth claim based on what the Bible says, that is intolerant and hateful to other Christians, or I, I'm, I'm sorry, to other religions. 
to other religions. That's what people would say. That's what we're up against. You guys are bigoted, you're narrow-minded, you're elitist. And I'm not saying that Christians, there are Christians that actually will say that in a hateful way. We should never say that in a hateful way. To me, when someone says that in a hateful way, they just don't understand God's grace. They really don't understand the grace of God. It's kind of more that in-your-face Christianity. It's like, what part of grace do you not understand? And so the mindset of this new tolerance is a religion is most tolerant and therefore most virtuous that refuses to say that other religions are wrong. And yet, if you understand the Bible, the Bible is basically saying, yes, all other religions are wrong other than Christianity and, and, and being about Christ. See, that view is becoming so dominant and powerful that it is becoming the ultimate good in our culture. It is tolerance at the expense of truth. It's almost like people don't even care about truth anymore. It's just all about tolerance. Can we just get along? You shouldn't say that. That's hateful. Well, it's true. I'm trying to say it in the most loving way, but, it, but that's, the, that's true. And I cannot help but say that because I'm held to that standard. And it's important. And so how should we respond to that? 1 Peter 3.15 helps us with that. It says, in your hearts, honor Christ." the Lord is holy. In other words, realize there is objective truth that we all should live by, and we're calling people to, to live by, and it's important. But always be prepared. He says, so in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord is holy. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that you have in your heart, but do it with gentleness and respect. The word reason here is where we get our word apolo. It's apologia, where we get our word apologetics, where you give a defense for your faith. Give people a defense for why you believe what you believe and the hope that, they, that you have. When they look at you and you have this incredible hope in spite of what's going on in our culture today, they're gonna go, wow, I'd like to know what that is and do it with gentleness and respect. Speak the truth in love. Now we could add to this list, this is just some of the things that will, that will try to steal your heart away from Christ. And so let me summarize all of these with two uh, quotes from C.S. Lewis. Here's the first one. Human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. That's the bottom line. And this is the battle at the the center of all of our hearts. In fact, the next quote, we're half-hearted creatures fooling with drink, sex, and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Do you hear me? Through Christ Jesus, there is infinite joy in him that cannot be found anyplace else on this planet. And, and the rest of this quote goes like this. I don't have it up on the notes, on your notes or up on the screen, but, but he compares us. We are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because, because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We're too easily pleased. That's why we chase after all of these philosophies of our day, guised as wisdom. Like, this is how you live. This is how you find life. This is important to us. So let me, let me once again define to you what sin is. Sin is not just breaking a bunch of rules or, or whatever. I mean, sin does involve that. We, we do break rules, but why do we do that? Why would we break God's standard of living. Sin is what we do when we are not satisfied with Christ. Sin is what we do when we're not satisfied with Christ. We sin because it offers us a promise of happiness. 
We chase after sin in direct proportion to how we think we are going to be happier. I mean, look at the list. Narcissism, materialism, hedonism, sex. Why why would anybody do that? Because they think they're going to be happier. They've been duped. They've been deceived. Plausible arguments. Wow, that sounds really good. Yeah, I think I, I want to do that. And what happens then we become enslaved, just as Paul said in his writing here. We chase after these things and, and we become deceived, plausible arguments, deceived, and then we become enslaved by these things. And so we sin because it offers us a promise of happiness, but the power of sin's promise enslaves us until we are captivated by the power of our Savior's promise to satisfy us. What he offers is always better by far. So holiness, so he calls us to a holy life. A lot of times people go, what does that mean? Holier than thou, that's what comes to mind for me. You guys think you're better than everybody else. Well, that's not holiness. That's self-righteousness. Holiness is the best kind of life you could live. It's, it's, another word you could use for that is wholeness. So holiness or wholeness or completeness is being so happy in Christ that sin loses its appeal. So the more happy you are in Christ, the less you'll be overtaken by the sin of this world and the less you'll be overwhelmed by the suffering of this world. All of the solutions come right back to Christ. All of the answers are found in Christ Jesus. That's what I love about this book. So he's, he spent the whole chapter just talking about, hey, our completeness is in Christ. Oh, by the way, chapter two, here's warning. These things will drag you away from Christ. They will keep you from experiencing the completeness that only he can give you. And so, so beware of empty philosophies, and your best defense is a great offense. So here's my favorite part of the message right here. We're going to talk about Jesus. My favorite, favorite person, Jesus. Favorite topic, gospel. Yep, 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 that's what we're going to do. This is where we go. Look at verses 1 and 2. So your best defense is a great offense. Verses 1 and 2. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Notice what he says here. This is, it's a bit subtle. It's assumed, but we'll talk about that in just a moment. So if you're going to have a great defense, you've got to know this right here. I'm going to spend a little bit more time on this than what you would probably like for me to do. And I'm not going to get to the fill in the blanks just yet, but we're going to talk a little bit about this. But he says in verse 2 that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. He's talking about the church in Colossae and Laodicea. So what is he talking about here? He's talking that if you're going to keep from being led astray by the philosophies of this world, if you're going to guard yourself against the silent toll of spiritual and moral decay happening in your life, you got to be connected to a healthy community of Christians, followers of Christ. That's what he's talking about here. Let me read it again. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. Then he's going to go on and explain what that means and really focus in on Christ. So you're not going to survive in our culture. You're going to drift out beyond the buoy into destructive territory, and you're going to be taken down if you don't have a set of, as I said, objective points of reference that you refer to regularly and look to as it relates to every aspect of your life and particularly the Lord Jesus Christ and looking to him as your all in all. 
And that's, that's what he's wanting us to understand. So let's just talk about community, the importance of community for a minute. And in Hebrews 10, 23 through 25, listen to what the writer says. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. So how do we keep from wavering in difficult times? He's gonna explain that in a minute. You're gonna waver in difficult times if you don't have this. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Do you have people in your life that can stir up your heart and appetite for Christ and for good works? Are you in, in, in relationship? That's what he said, that their hearts may be encouraged and being knit together in love. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about a community is assumed. Notice he says, not neglecting to meet together as some are in the habit, as, as is the habit of some. Did you know that after this COVID thing in the last couple of years, one third of the people have left the congregations of American churches. One third are AWOL, they're missing, they're not going anywhere. They were taken out by this whole COVID thing. And they're gonna be taken out even worse than that because they don't have that connection, that vital connection that they need with other believers to keep them on track, to hold them accountable. And it needs to be a healthy church. So don't look for perfect church, look for a healthy church and understand what a healthy church is. I'll give you some of the characteristics as we work through this. So I think he's kind of helping us with that. But he says, not neglecting to meet together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Difficult times are headed our way. And if you're out there on your own, you're gonna be taken out. And you're gonna even drift out away from these, is what I said, these objective points of reference in the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's two deadly mindsets that I see prevalent in our culture today and even has come into the church. And the one is anonymity and the other one is individuality. Anonymity says this, I don't want anybody to be I don't want anyone, anybody to know my business. And that's out of fear. You're, you're, you're afraid of rejection. That's one of the reasons why large churches thrive because I've talked with a lot of people and a lot of people like to come late, leave early and never connect with anybody. I don't want anybody to know when I'm there and when I'm not there. Well, that kind of misses the whole point of church, does it not? I actually heard someone say that. He says, I prefer to go to larger churches because I can slide in, slide out. Nobody knows when I'm there or not. I says, well, that kind of misses the whole point of church. It's called accountability. It's called love. It's called support. It's called encouragement. You need that. If you don't get that, you're not going to make it. You're not going to survive. Just showing up and hanging out on the back row somewhere is not going to do it. It's not enough. It's called anonymity, and it's because you have fear in your life. I understand that but you don't understand grace. Grace will make you open up more and want to connect deeper with others. The other one is individuality. I don't need anybody's help. That's pride. And with that attitude, you will be taken down. You will drift away from Christ because we all need help. In fact, did you know that this was established right at the front end of the Bible? You guys know what I'm talking about there? It's the second chapter of Genesis. After he created man, this is what he said. It is not good for man to be alone. And that was before the fall. That was before sin came into the world. This is when we were perfect. He says, it is not good for you to be hanging out by yourself because you get really weird. <laughs> I added that last part, but because that's right. 
We get weird and crazy. I need people to kind of hold me accountable and say, ah, that's a little weird there, okay? Come up, come on. Let's move within the, you know, you know these parameters here? You know that buoy? You're kind of floating out beyond that buoy right now. That's weird. You're going to get killed. So we need people in our life. It's not good for you to be alone. And I understand. I come across people all the time that said, man, I was devastated by my last church experience. And I will say, I was too. I was too, but I'm going to be a part of the solution, not part of the problem. And I know that has nothing to do with Jesus. I want us to be healthy so that we can represent him well. So don't become bitter, but become wiser in your understanding of what healthy community looks like. And let's be God's community together to reach this world. But don't just check out because that will take you out. That attitude will take you out and you isolate yourself. Oh my goodness, you're going to be taken out. And so, I mean, I said all of that right here just to say that's the foundation of what he's talking. Now together, this is what a healthy church really looks like. Make Christ the test. That's your fill in the blank. Make Christ the test. And here's what I'll often do is when I'm, you know, when I attend church someplace else or if I listen to a preacher or I hear, I try to understand what is their agenda here. Is this all about Christ or is this about their celebrity pastor, or their programs, or their great building, or any number of things. And I've seen this in churches these days. They make it about anything and everything other than Christ. In fact, oftentimes when I hear someone give their testimony, I've actually heard people give their testimony. I had someone years ago say, hey, listen to this guy's testimony. He's on the fire department with you. And so I went to their website, it was a church website, and I listened to this guy's testimony. And at the end of the testimony, I said, oh, my goodness. Who's the hero of the story of, of this guy's testimony? It wasn't Christ. It was that church and how he was over to overcome great odds. Oh, he's a wonderful guy. Look at him, and you can do the same thing. That's existentialism. That's a form of humanism. Where's Christ? He's AWOL. Where's the gospel? It's peripheral. It's incidental. A lot of that stuff has infiltrated the local churches. So the first test, make Christ... The test. And so my question for you is that what difference has Christ made in your life? I mean, you gotta be able to know that right there. Just go, oh man, I'm telling you, listen to me. This is the difference Christ has made in my life. Oh, by the way, this is the difference he's continuing to make in my life right now. So when I hear your testimony, I should be drawn to Christ. I should go, oh my goodness, I wanna know the Christ that this person knows because look at the difference it's made in their life. See, that would be a healthy testimony. That would be a healthy church that it's all about Christ, it's all, all about Christ. Look at verse 2b, he says, to reach all the riches. Now, keep in mind, this is in the context of community. Verse, first part of two, he says, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches. So together, we are to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. What's the knowledge of God's mystery? Which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Oh my goodness, this is such a rich text. This text is overwhelming. All the richest treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. That word treasures literally means to have, it'd be like having a safe in your home. If you have a gun safe, some of you guys have guns, you have a big gun safe, or you have maybe a smaller safe, you put all your, you know, your, maybe you have gold and silver that you purchased for an investment, so you put it in that safe. And what it's saying is that Christ is that safe. Hidden in Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The answer to all of life's most fundamental questions are found in Christ. Whatever you're struggling with, 
whatever you're working through, whatever you're up against, the answer is found in Christ Jesus. It's found in him, that's what it's saying. John 14, six, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I am the way to the Father. You wanna have a relationship with God? It's through me. You wanna know what God is all about? Look to me. You wanna have a life that's beyond your wildest dreams? It's found in me. The way, the truth, and the life. All of our struggles go back to the reality that we need Christ. We find our completeness in Christ, in Him alone. That's why Desert Breeze from the beginning has been about Christ. It's always been about Christ. And and our lives need to be Christ-centered. Everything we do is about honoring Him and loving Him. And so, look at verse 8. Back to verse 8. We've already read it, but let's read it again. I want you to notice the contrast that he makes. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elementary spirits of the world. Notice the contrast here. And not according to Christ. You see the solution to all those? Christ. So this is what you want to do. Test every high-sounding philosophy, religious system, or even Christian teaching by asking this question. Does it give Christ the place of preeminence? Do they show Christ to be more desirable and superior and sufficient and satisfying than anything in this world? Or do they have another agenda? I can tell you exactly what the enemy's up to in your life. And I can tell you exactly what the enemy's up to in the lives of the people on this planet currently. And it's not because I have some kind of hotline between me and God and that you don't have access to. I'm, I'm just gonna tell you what the Bible says and I see this lived out in my life all around me. Here's what the enemy's up to when it comes to unbelievers. It's found in 2 Corinthians 4.4, but the God of this world, speaking of Satan, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel, the glory of Jesus Christ. So the mind, their mindset, all that they are, they have these philosophies that prevent them from seeing the beauty and the glory of Christ because that is what will set them free. If he can blind us to Jesus, he's done his work. Now let me tell you what he's doing in your life as a believer in Christ. This is what he's doing. He's working overtime to do this. 2 Corinthians 11.3, this is what Paul says. He says to them, but I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, that somehow your hearts may be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He's trying to lead your heart's deepest loyalties and affections away from Christ. That's what he's done. Simple, simple game. He wants you to love and want and desire anything more than Christ. That's what he's doing. And that's why he's using all these different philosophies in our culture today to draw your heart away. The lie is as old as Adam and Eve and in the garden. If you obey God, you're not going to be happy. That's not where you're going to find life. 
That's what he's saying. He's gonna lead your heart away from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Sincere means authentic, real. You're connected to God. You have a relationship with him. You're not just going through the motions. You're not just robotically singing songs. Oh my goodness, you're connecting with God through the study of his word as you connect with other Christians. It's real, it's authentic. No pretense, no game playing, no mask wearing. You and God, there's, an, there's a realness in your relationship with him. But sincere, but the word pure, also pure. It doesn't mean perfect. Here's what that means. It means this, that you're aware of those things that are in creation that are competing for your heart's deepest loyalties and affections away from Christ. And if you're not aware of that in your own heart and life, you're gonna be taken out in our culture today. You ought to be able to know what are those counterfeit gods and pseudo-saviors that are competing for my heart's deepest loyalties and affections away from Christ. Are you aware of that? That's what you need to be aware of because that's what the enemy is up to. And so the cure is to be aware of that, to have that, as I said here, that sincere and pure devotion to Christ, sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Make Christ the test. You wanna be around people, you wanna be in a church that makes it about Christ, not about how smart they are or their great theology or any number of things like that because those are all distractions. We need good theology, but that theology should lead to doxology, which is worship of God, and that's what ultimately transforms your life. So it's gotta, it's gotta move you to Christ. See, belief is more than an agreement with facts in the head. It's an appetite for God in the heart that exceeds all other appetites. And you want Christ more than anything. So make Christ the test, walk in Christ, walk in Christ, that's the next one. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So okay, okay, I get it. You, you committed your life to Christ and to commit your life to Christ, that's the very first step. You acknowledged your sin that separated you from God. You believe that Christ died in your place for your sins on the cross and you've confessed him as Lord and Savior. Okay, yeah, praise God. You've been reconciled to God, but don't stop there. That's not the finish line. That's the starting blocks. And now you can walk with him. You can have relationship with him. I believe this is the best part of the Christian life, walking with Christ, experiencing Christ, practicing the presence of Christ through a continual conversation and communion with him. Not just once on weekend when we gather or one time a day, but throughout the day. I mean, do you ever find yourself when you're stressed out, don't you come back to him and say, oh, Jesus, please. <laughs> I've been thinking about you lately, but Lord, help me with this. Help me to navigate this. Give me wisdom. Lord, I love you. See, this is the best part of the Christian life, practicing his presence through a, through a continuing relationship and conversation with him, feeding your soul in the highest thoughts of Christ. There is... There is deep joy in simply being with him. See, when you use the word walk, walk is the language of relationship and friendship. That's why he's saying make Christ the test, but then walk in Christ. Man, if you're not doing that, you're missing on the best part of the Christian life. Interacting with Christ, knowing Christ, enjoying Christ, following Christ, obeying Christ, talking to him, enjoying him. Here's the next one, make Christ the test, walk in Christ, grow in Christ. Notice what he says in verse seven, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith 
just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. He uses, he's mixing metaphors here, so he uses a tree, a building, and then he just talks about, you know, a, a really solid faith, solid faith foundation, so we're less susceptible to temptations and trials. So he's kind of using all of that, but notice what he says at the very end, abounding in thanksgiving. So how do I know that I'm growing up in Christ? So I've made Christ the test, and I'm walking in Christ, so how do I know I'm actually growing in Christ? Here's the tragedy is that I've known people that have walked with Christ for years, I'm wondering if they're really walking with Christ, and they've never changed a bit. I don't wanna be like that. I want my life to continue to change, so how do I know that I'm actually growing up in Christ? I think that you will more and more be abounding in thanksgiving. We said this about three, four weeks ago. The foremost character of a person who is trusting God is thanksgiving. So the more you trust God, the more you're walking with him and you develop this trust in him because the more you get to know him, the more you trust him. You just naturally do that. So the more you trust him when you're facing difficulties in life, you're able to navigate those even with a a level of thanksgiving because you know he's got you. He's got you covered. He's gonna take care of you. He'll never leave you or forsake you. You're gonna be okay no matter how difficult it gets. That's trusting Christ. Doesn't make sense to you, trust the Lord with all of your heart. Do not lean upon your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he'll direct your path. You know that, he's directing your path. That's uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. You just, you're just resting in him so there's gonna be a level of thanksgiving. But here's another way that you know that, that you're growing. That's how you know. That's how I know. <laughs> there's a narrowing of that gospel gap. Gospel gap, you guys know what gospel gap means? My beliefs in my behavior. Because oftentimes I tell people, yeah, I love Jesus, he's for me, he's not against me. I'm almost like, I know I'm invincible in a lot of ways, indestructible in a lot of ways, because I know that he's always with me, and yet my behavior would betray me because I act really ridiculous sometimes when people offend me or someone cuts me off on the freeway or any number of things like that. I I actually, it, it betrays what I actually believe. I may say I believe this, but in reality, how I live that out, there's this gospel gap, and so I know I know I'm growing because that gap begins to get narrower and narrower. Let me, let me give you a quick illustration of that. If someone as wise and powerful as God loves me, delights in me, has gone to infinite lengths to save me, has promised to never leave me or forsake me, and he's also promised to work all things for my good, if all of that is true, my beliefs, if all of that is true, why would I ever be inordinately anxious, angry, or depressed over the things people, things, and circumstances of my life because there's a gospel gap. See, my spirituality and my reality, there's a gap, there's a disconnect. We're gonna talk more about this in a few weeks, but but how do you narrow that gap? How do you narrow that gap? The last point on your notes is drawing Christ's fullness. You've gotta learn how to draw on Christ's fullness. When you're going through life and you're taking a beating, how do you draw on Christ's fullness? Like I said, I'm gonna get into more of this in a few weeks down the road. Once we get out of uh, chapter two, we'll get into chapter three, and it's absolutely, uh, it's a nosebleed section. I mean, I mean it's just like, it's, it's the heights of who we are in Christ and what we can do as a result of that. But draw on Christ's fullness, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So basically, Philippians 3.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So somehow, I've got to take the truths of who Christ is and what he's done to me and apply them specifically to my heart in the moment of that difficulty of whatever I'm facing. 
Philippians 4.19, my God shall supply all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. So when I'm experiencing overwhelming negative thoughts and feelings, and I'm in touch with that, oftentimes I'm not in touch with that, that's called emotional intelligence, where you're saying, hey, you know what, I shouldn't be acting like that. For someone that believes that Christ is always for me, I'm kind of responding in a way like he's nowhere to be found. There's a major gospel gap happening. You've got to be able to identify that and say, you know what, there's more that Christ wants me to learn in this. I need to really draw from him, draw from Christ's fullness. So I have three choices in dealing with those negative thoughts and emotions. I can express them and damage and tear up relationships, or I can suppress them and damage and tear up myself inside through bitterness and self-pity and and anxiety, or I can bring them to God and allow him to reorder them. And that's why it tells us in Psalm 55, 22, cast your burdens upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will not allow the righteous to be shaken. I've got to bring them to God. And so I've got to learn how to follow the trigger of those negative thoughts and emotions back to their origin. And I have to ask myself this question, what am I looking to more than Christ for my meaning, hope, and happiness in life? Because at that moment, those negative thoughts and emotions are revealing that I'm putting my hope and my trust and my love in something other than him. I must identify, identify it and then replace it with Christ. Whatever that is, that pseudo-savior, that counterfeit God, how do you do that? I replace it with Christ by rejoicing in what I have in Christ more than that counterfeit God. I've got to learn how to walk through that. And if you have made an idol out of work or family, you don't want to stop loving your work and family, but you want to love Christ so much more that you are not enslaved by those attachments. If you love God with all of your heart, then you will love everything else appropriately, keeping them in their proper order. And so what we have to do, and this is why worship is so incredible and important to us. You must learn how to worship and praise God until your heart is so sweetened and satisfied in him that you are able to release your grip on anything that you think you can't live without other than Christ. Next weekend, we're gonna talk about beware of religious legalism. I'll be up front at the end of the service. If you're new, I'd love the opportunity to meet you. If you need prayer, I'd love to pray with you. If you'd love to commit your life to Jesus, be a great weekend to do that. I'd love to pray with you in regards to that. If you have any questions about any of this, I'd love to try to answer those questions for you. I'll be up here along with any available elders also. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's just take a moment. So, Father God, we confess that our hearts are so easily led astray by so many empty philosophies of our day. Let us be more aware of the silent toll of spiritual and moral decay that could be happening in our lives, leading us to destruction. We know that our best defense is a great offense, so we pray in the context of healthy church community, help us to always make Christ the test, walking with Christ, growing in Christ, daily drawing from Christ's fullness. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful and glorious name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. Love you guys.